Salve! Ciao! Buongiorno! Greetings and welcome to the Italian Studies channel on the New Books Network. We are your hosts. I'm Ellen Nirenberg from Wesleyan University. And I'm Giancarlo Lombardi from the College of Staten Island and the Graduate Center of the City University of New York. I'm Nicoletta Marini-Maio from Dickinson College. Whether you're a colleague and expert in the field of Italian studies... Or just curious about Italian history, culture, politics and language... We are your podcast destination. The aim of the Italian Studies channel is to provide a broad spectrum of listeners access to exciting new research within the field of Italian studies. Italian studies is a fascinating interdisciplinary field that spans literary studies, cultural studies, cinema and television studies, theater and performance, the history of science, the history of art and music, among many, many other fields. That's right, Nico. Our conversations here are with scholars who have produced recent research across many and varied fields and topics. Ellen, Nicoletta and I are scholars of modern and contemporary Italian studies, but our mission is to bring you the best of new scholarship in the field, from medieval literature to the most recent cinema and television. And the focus, approaches and methods of study will differ And what we hope emerges from our conversations is an idea of the richness the field has to offer to many and different listeners. So welcome to the Italian Studies channel on the New Books Network. Grazie dell'ascolto. And thanks for listening. Hi, Russ. We have Russ Kilborn here. Russ Kilborn is a professor in the Department of English and Film Studies at Wilfrid Laurel University in Waterloo, Ontario, Canada. Hi, Russ. Hi there, Nico. Thank you very much for inviting me to discuss my book. Thank you very much to you. Your book is really very interesting. Um, and your book today actually is uh, uh, the book on, uh, on the cinema of Paolo Sorrentino, Commitment to Style. That's the subtitle that really um, made me very intrigued, actually, because I want I want to discuss that with you. But first of all, um, I would like you to tell something about yourself and about your background, where you're from. Um, so this is the first question for you. <laughs> well, I uh, I don't know how interesting that part is. I, I'm actually from Calgary, Alberta in Canada, uh, coming to you right now from Ontario, Canada, uh, where I teach. And uh, I am obviously not uh, of Italian extraction. I think you can tell by my name. Um, But I do have a longstanding relationship with uh, Italy, Italian culture, Italian cinema, both through my uh, work, research, teaching. uh, And uh, and, uh, and then on the other hand, because I I am married to an actual Italian person, my wife is from Trieste. And uh, it's thanks to her in part that I think that I was inspired to uh, look more closely at Italian cinema um, having what, seen a few Sorrentino films, uh, she suggested a few years ago that it might be a good idea to write a book on uh, Sorrentino, on his films. And when I looked into it, um, of course, I found that the, while there were uh, a couple of uh, monographs in Italian uh, and, and, of course, articles in English and Italian, um, there was there is no uh, single book dedicated to Sorrentino's films. And as far as I know, uh, that's still the case. Um, mine seems to be the only one. And, and uh, so I wanted to just uh, jump on that while the opportunity was there. 
Yes, uh, this is the first book on in um, in the Anglo-Saxon um, environment. The first book on Sorrentino. Exactly. Um, yeah, it, it's a it's an amazing and phenomenal director, film director, and uh, is a living one. So the interest in him has become more and more prominent. And actually, my first question is about um, is about this. So the critics and the scholars at the beginning were kind of resistant to him or maybe not interested in him. Some of them were instead really enthusiastic about it. I I am one of them, actually. But uh, can you talk about that a little bit? Uh, Yeah. I mean, critics um, have always been sort of very divided about Sorrentino, I think, right from the beginning in in, probably in Italian, in English uh, scholarship, also in French, as I understand it, uh, in Cahiers de Cinema, one of the leading cinema journals, um, the, apparently they've always sort of uh, been, hated him. Um, I'm not entirely sure why, but uh, in, in the English criticism, um, my sense is that those critics that, that find him uh, tiresome or annoying uh, or, or, or don't like him for some reason, they, they tend to privilege, um, they, they, they tend to, to uh, t- criticize him for his style, uh, privileging style over substance. Um, and this is not an uncommon criticism you get from reviewers uh, uh, of a certain approach to film style. This is something that comes up with the Coen brothers in American cinema, for example, as if uh, these films were just uh, made up of spectacular images with nothing beneath, no substance. And um, there are a lot of things wrong with this with this approach, obviously. Um, the first, The first being that, of course, there is no substance at all without some kind of style. Um, and, uh, and moreover with these, with this, with this kind of director, in this case, Sorrentino, uh, who is known really for his beautiful and often spectacular, uh, or idiosyncratic approach to film style. Um, you, you really have to pay close attention to that style in order to understand his films. Um, I think it's, uh, it's a bit silly to, uh, stop there and just dismiss him as if he were a pure stylist, whatever that means. Yes. So, um, I bet that this this kind of resistance to to Sorrentino and this kind of criticism also was a, a motivation for you to uh, start thinking about the book. Uh, besides your your wife's um, encouragement, um, but I also you know I noticed that you you published two books on uh, representation of memory and narrative cinema. Um, so. Uh, of course, you are very interested in substance, not only in uh, in in style. So, can you talk about how the book on Sorrentino brings uh, together these interests? Can you give us an idea of the intellectual process uh, that led you to conceive this book? Uh, well, I mean, on the subject of style, um, it's right there in the subtitle, of course, commitment to style. Um, and and uh, for me, whatever I'm writing about cinematically, I, I almost always ground my approach, as, as do many people, in, in, in uh, some kind of formal film analysis. Uh, to me, this is just fundamental. Whatever else you're going to talk about, um, you, I think you really need to begin there. And I, and I, I think I, I do that quite consistently in this book. I certainly try to. Um, and that is one reason why uh, film style is emphasized right in the subtitle. Um, and th- so that's something that I that I would always want to do um, because we're talking about a specific medium, of course. Um, I mean, this is just one aspect of the book, but it's an important one. I, I probably privilege that uh, you know this kind of formal analysis, discussion of shots and and, and mise en scène and editing and that kind of nuts and bolts stuff 
more than, say, film theory. Uh, I try not to get too much into film theory in this book so as not to alienate uh, certain kinds of readers who, who might not want to really think about that too much, uh, which I understand. Um, when you're just really into a particular director's work and you want to learn more about uh, the whole corpus of films, you know, um, it's that kind of book, I think. So uh, there's more to be said about style, but that's, you know, just an answer to your question initially. Yes, yes, we'll be talking about that a lot, actually, because um, as I anticipated, the subtitle, uh, The Commitment to Style, is, is kind of something that identifies and characterizes your discussion of Sorrentino's film for the whole book. But first of all, for our listeners, would you like, um, would you be so kind as to give um, a brief overview of Paolo Sorrentino's cinema, explaining in particular why this style is so important in his film? Uh, yeah, I mean, this is something that I think you always have to, you can't escape, you know, you, you, it always comes back to that with the filmmaker like Sorrentino, who, um, uh, and there's also a reason why I uh, point out right at the, in the introduction, this is a, this is a book for, you know, English language readers, people who, who don't have Italian um, uh, and want and want an introduction to this filmmaker, precisely because he has gained an audience, a uh, wide audience outside of Italy, outside of Europe. Um, so, so he's also that kind of filmmaker, which I refer to as transnational, uh, beyond Italian, beyond uh, regional uh, or national filmmaker. Um, but he did get a start. Uh, as uh, many people may know, in Naples, which is where he comes from, uh, he's a Neapolitan originally, um, he's made, eight, what, eight or nine films, probably nine films at this point, and a couple of uh, uh, t- television series, uh, well-received television series as well. Um, only his very first feature film, uh, Un Woman Pew, One Man Up in English, very strange title, um, is actually set in Naples uh, and sort of and sort of is a is a kind of a Neapolitan film, although not uh, not in a, in a major way. Um, it's much more about character and uh, certain kinds of themes. Um, uh, and it also happens to be the first time Sorrentino worked with uh, Tony Sorvillo, the uh, Neapolitan actor. I believe he's also from Naples, uh, who went on to star in a number of Sorrentino's films uh, and who's become who's become re- associated with Sorrentino. Um, so. So we have uh, in One Man Up the, the first sort of film, feature film, which is the Neapolitan film. And right away after that, uh, Sorrentino, with each subsequent film, he's moving around uh, in Italy to the north, to, to Rome, to other Italian locations. He's shooting outside of Italy. Even, he even has an American road film, and this must, this must be the place. Um, he, he begins to cast uh, actors, not Italian actors, non-European actors, Hollywood actors, all kinds of actors. He begins to film in English as well as in Italian. Uh, his TV series are basically English language uh, and so on. Um, so, so I guess one of, the, one of the things I'm getting at here is the transnational character of his filmmaking practice. Um, whatever else one might say about Sorrentino the person, uh, this is a very distinctive feature of his approach to to uh, you know to writing and, and directing his films and and then the other thing that we can't forget to add of course is that there would be no Sorrentinian style without his uh, cinematographer Luca Bigazzi who's been there with him since his second feature film Con- uh, the consequences of love so just to make sure I mention that <laughs> yes absolutely 
Now I might have gotten away from your question. I'm not sure. Yeah. Um, no, I was. Um, I think you you've given a great overview of Sorrentino's film, or Sorrentino's ah, right. cinema, yeah. for our for our listeners, especially in the Anglo-Saxon context. And going back to your um, your reflection on the idea that especially English speaking. Um, uh, readers are interested in this book. I think that the, the Italian audience would also be interested. Of course, they need to understand English, but they they would be very interested because it's a it's a it's a, um, a transnational perspective on Sorrentino cinema, which is not so common in the Italian panorama in the in, in the Italian critical panorama. So I I really appreciate that. I think it's really important for Italian audiences as well. But going back to um, the, the Sorrentino, the, the overview of Sorrentino's cinema. Um, you presented the the nine films that he made, and mm. your book is organized in eight chapters and a coda. And the last, um, the ninth chapter, the, the, the ninth chapter on uh, his last film. Uh, but this, to me, this. Uh, you know, when when I was reading it, I was uh, going through it, and in each chapter, you not only talk about one film, but you really make a lot um, of intratextual, intertextual, um, uh, transmedia connections with other Sorrentino's films, with other filmmakers' works, uh, from Spike Lee to um, uh, Heron's American Psycho, for instance many others. Um, you mentioned literary texts as intertextual relationships, such as Primo Levi's If This Is a Man. Uh, you mentioned artistic works, like, I mean, you go to Magritte's um, surrealist paintings. Uh, so can you, can you please explain how these connections work in Sorrentino's films? Can you, can you make some can you give some uh, specific examples? For, I, I'm thinking of the young pope, Il Divo. This must sure. be the place. But you are free. Feel free to, um, <laughs> you know, use your examples. Well, I think first I would just um, go back to your, the start of your question and and just to address the. Uh, I, I refer to this in the book uh, as as the intertextual or intermedial. Uh, transmedial dimension of uh, Sorrentino's films, and this this is sort of uh, film theory, literary theory jargon. Uh, but but it's um, and and I don't we, one doesn't have to talk about this stuff with that using that kind of language, which can be a little off putting. But I, but I think it's worth uh, it's important to point out that this you know it's it's it also can be kind of dry just um, reading nothing about how a film is made in terms you know in terms of its stylistic uh, audiovisual style. Um, the, this is a, this is a very different dimension uh, of a film. In other words, uh, all of the um, other texts, other films, and other kinds of texts that sort of find their way into a given film, which is actually uh, much more common than people might think. Um, and uh, in the case of a filmmaker like uh, Sorrentino, it is an extremely rich and, extre- and a very very significant aspect of of his filmmaking practice. Um, I think you know if you if you listen to or read a, a couple of interviews with Sorrentino, you realize he's a very well-read, literate, erudite person. He actually has an, at least one novel and a couple of other works of fiction, short story collections, and so forth. Um, in addition to his screenplays and his filmmaking um, and his other artistic endeavors, um, he's he's very interested in music. He's 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 a very cultured individual, <laughs> kind of an old-fashioned. Um, so, and yes. this this makes its way this this uh, this aspect again. This isn't really about him. It's it's what 
It's what makes its way into his films and informs the meaning of any given film in a really uh, in a really significant way and can't be ignored. So so that's you know that's my justification for for that aspect of the book. Um, in terms of some of the examples you mentioned, um, in in my analysis of the the Young Pope uh, TV series, for example, um, th- th- there's a there's a sort of a motif running through the series of a, of a man's meerschaum pipe, one of those big brown um, sort of 19th century pipes like Sherlock Holmes would smoke um, that is also featured in a famous surrealist painting by the Belgian painter René Magritte that you mentioned from about 1930. That fi- the painting that, that depicts the pipe fairly realistically with the text in French saying, ceci n'est pas un pipe, this is not a pipe. Um, uh, so it's, a, it's a, obviously an artwork that comments on the nature of representation uh, the relationship between words and images, um, and so I try to explore there uh, how that how an artwork like that resonates in a in a TV show, a TV series like The Young Pope, where there seems to be no apparent connection between these two things. Although in 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 a particular episode, um, the main character, the the first American pope, played by Jude Law, receives a, a piece of a pipe in the in the mail and puts it together with another piece that he has, and and the overhead shot of the pipe on the on the desk really does replicate quite deliberately the Magritte painting. And so at that point, you have to sort of see that and go, okay, what's this doing here? Um, uh, And I can't really get into that explanation because it would take too long. But just to point out that that's actually a deliberate, that's a deliberate uh, intertextual link. Um, They're not always so deliberate. But with Sorrentino, it's uh, it's not hard to do this. Um, In very different examples from uh, a film like Il Divo, the biopic of Giulio Andreotti, the famous Italian, uh, what, seven-time prime minister, um, he, we, we, you get something much more, uh, I guess, much more typical cinematically, which is references and homages to other films and other filmmakers. Um, so in the course of Il Divo, which is a, 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 you know, a biopic of a, a person who really on the surface seems very boring and unspectacular, the style of the film is informed by all these um, sort of quotations, if you will, from Scorsese, De Palma, um, uh, even Quentin Tarantino, uh, quite famously now in, in a particular sequence. Um, so we're talking about how a scene is framed and, and blocked and, and, and shot, uh, whether there's slow motion, the editing pace, the, the pace of the editing, the use of music and so on. Um, and so there are some clear deliberate quotations from films like Reservoir Dogs, uh, from, uh, Scorsese's Taxi Driver, De Palma's The Untouchables. In each case, this, if you trace the, it back to the source uh, film, you realize that these are stories of criminals, uh, gangsters, mobsters, uh, bad men, often played by Robert De Niro, uh, not coincidentally. Um, and they're all, and all of these uh, moments are being used to comment upon the central character of Giulio Andreotti, played once again by Tony Servillo. And so you have to think, okay, what's Sorrentino saying about this this man, this politician, if he's if he's infusing the texture of the film with these, uh, deli- you know, overt references to these particular, uh, films and this particular genre of film. Um, so, so that's a, that's a really good example. And then finally, if I can just, um, mention a very different, another kind of example altogether in this must be the place, the sort of, uh, road film starring, uh, Sean Penn of all people, which, and he's really well cast, I think. Um, the first uh, two thirds or so of the film is almost like a remake of Vim Vendor's um, uh, road, famous road film, Paris, Texas with Harry Dean Stanton from, uh, I think around 1980. 
Um, and then in the latter third sort of morphs into a, a strange kind of Holocaust or really a post-Holocaust film in a, in a serious way. Um, so um, in, the, in the course of that sort of transformation from one kind of film to another, the screenplay introduces um, a voiceover of uh, Sean Penn's character's father, who has just died, uh, who was a, 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 a Jewish man uh, who wound up in New York City in the Orthodox community. Uh, he passes away. He leaves his son a file, a folder of letters, and you and we we start to hear the letters being read in voiceover. Um, and and each sequence begins with a phrase like uh, "before the inferno, before the inferno." So you begin to realize that the that this is a memoir of uh, his being uh, interned in a concentration camp, like Auschwitz, um, although he did survive. And uh, and so inevitably, with these kinds of this kind of language and these kinds of references. Um, and the explicit evocation of the Holocaust, uh, and the and the revelation that the main character is himself Jewish, uh, although he's sort of rejected that past. Um, you, the, inevitably, connect, connections with texts like Primo Levi's uh, "If this if this is a man" uh, can arise, um, and through Levi, uh, through specific passages, uh, you know, you can go back to a figure like Dante, uh, who's quoted uh, extensively by by Primo Levi. And of course, Dante is tremendously significant to to Italian uh, culture, uh, per se, uh, sort of like Shakespeare for for the Anglo world, um, and so on and so forth. And you can and you can sort of trace these these linkages uh, for as long as you want, uh, you know, as long as it sort of fits into the chapter, which is what I tried to do. <laughs> yes, no, and I find it particularly interesting. Um... In fact, when you are when you are speaking of Il Divo, when you are mm. writing of Il Divo, um, you are taking this um, kind of external perspective on him on the book uh, on the on the film, mm. and saying that Giulio Andreotti, which is completely unfamiliar to the Anglo-Saxon audience, of mm. course, but is made spectacular, and also is made familiar through citations. So right, that's right. that's the the most interesting thing to me, because I mean, all these citations are not used um, in an empty space. They they really mean something, and uh, and you are really discussing that very well. Um, and and most critics did not have a problem with that film uh, on that, in, in, mm-hmm. with respect to the the st- the use of style. No, that's that's true. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, but it's not only like Tarantino. I mean, it's uh, it's a little bit more meaningful, probably uh, the the way in which he uses citations. Um, well, you know, if you think of Reservoir Dogs and how ironic uh, Tarantino's yeah. tone is there, um, that irony carries over, but takes on far much becomes much more uh, serious uh, in the in the context of Andriotti's career. So. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> there is another. There is another reference that actually is very present in uh, uh, the scholarship on uh, Sorrentino and the critics of Sorrentino. Everybody thinks, yeah, that's Fellini. That's today <laughs> Federico Fellini's cinema. Um, so, why can you explain that? And how do you situate Fellini's work in Sorrentino's cinema? How do you see that? Uh, yes, of course. Um... The discussion of Fellini is sort of uh, inescapable. Although um, I, I don't spend a lot of time talking about Fellini in the book, I don't think, except to acknowledge uh, sort of glibly that uh, a film like uh, *Youth*, um, which is that's the title in English, if you if you watch it, it, it uh, comes across sort of as Sorrentino's homage to a film like Eight and a Half*. 
uh, from the early 60s by Fellini. Uh, Grande Bellezza, The Great Beauty, is, is everyone has pointed out how it, uh, it kind of, uh, it's almost like a remake of La Dolce Vita or a sequel, you might say. Um, one of Fellini's most famous films, again, from the early 60s, both of those films starring Marcello Mastriani, as if Tony Servillo's character and the Grande Bellezza were almost like a uh, the senior citizen version of, of, of Mastriani's character. I mean, it doesn't really work in terms of the math, the, the, the chronology, but anyway, um, th- there's certainly a, a lot of thematic uh, continuity between the two films. Um, Otherwise, uh, I would uh, one can argue that Fellini remains uh, really the more Italian of the two uh, for the for the kinds of reasons I've already outlined with respect to Sorrentino's having uh, really sort of transcended his origins in Neapolitan or Italian uh, cinema, um, really becoming a, a typical of a, of a generation of transnational filmmakers, perhaps uh, out of necessity, uh, apart from artistic choice, and Fellini. Um, so if, I think if you ask, uh, you know, scholars of Italian cinema today, Fellini would probably still remain the sort of uh, ultimate example of the iconic Italian auteur, you know, if you want to use that kind of language. Um, Sorrentino might be some other kind of auteur, you know, but you'd want to, I think, parse out that difference carefully because it's not fair to Sorrentino to say, oh, he's just just sort of like a uh, second rate Fellini or something like that. That's definitely not the case. Yeah, I agree with that. And uh, um, you mentioned the term auteur, and I think we need an explanation to our listeners. Uh, what do you mean about auteur? Is Sorrentino an auteur? What is an auteur in general? Yeah, this word, I mean, it is uh, part of a discourse that the average film fan might not use, although the the what the term represents is definitely very much part of the popular discourse around film uh, and the consumption of film uh, for most people. And that's definitely true. Um, the, the average film review reviewer is very invested in this idea that there's a, there's some sort of a pantheon of great directors, which is sort of amorphous and ever changing with some key figures who are pretty constant, say Fellini and Italian cinema, um, and you, you just have to say their name it's, it's, and it's only their last name and they're almost always men, you know, and, and you say, oh, that, this is like a Fellini film. Oh, this reminds me of Tar- Tarantino or Scorsese or, or uh, Antonioni, to speak of another great, great Italian auteur, um, or Kurosawa in Japanese cinema or wh- whomever. Um, and what this means, of course, when you invoke that name, uh, what you may not realize but what you're doing is you're 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 using that name as shorthand for a whole repertoire of stylistic choices, which uh, seem to recur across a body of work, a, a group of, of films, excuse me, and uh, which is a you know which is a useful way of talking about uh, films and and how and what they mean and how they mean uh, how they come to mean anything. Although then there's a tendency to really take that a bit too literally and think well you know, this film is great because Fellini made it. So, so I'm going to watch it. I'm going to watch anything by Fellini. Um, uh, and that's maybe not the best reason to choose your films. Um, or it might be because it has Tom Cruise in it. You know, I, Tom, Tom Cruise is sort of an auteur as well. Um, but again, uh, for me, it should always come down to, these things are interesting, but it should always come down to how is the film made? How does it work? What is it telling us? You know, this is the basis on which you can say it's. You can pass judgment and evaluate it in some legitimate way. I think. So, so oh, a, yeah. I, yeah. So through my book, I tried to sort of debunk that approach of of privileging the auteur too much. 
Yeah, and in a very um, down the down to the earth uh, way, actually, you explain it very clearly, and uh, uh, you know, you you actually take a bold position in also situating Sorrentino in uh, in the legacy of Italian of Italian cinema. So you discuss it in a very interesting way. You invoke. Um, the, the sacred terms of Italian cinema, like neorealism, realism, ethics, oh. autorism, as you already explained, and the cinema of impegno, the engaged cinema. And, and, and then you, you talk about post-realism. Can you just explain um, it, what you're doing with, uh, with, the, this, with this discussion? Because I found it really interesting the way in which you kind of debunk this, uh, this, this term, but at the same time, you contextualize um, Sorrentino cinema in a very um, powerful way. Yeah, Can I mean, you give the, our the, listeners some, some <laughs> examples of what, what you discuss? There are a lot of terms there. I mean, necessarily one has to use a certain yes. terminology, um, m- much of which I just get from other scholars and critics, uh, thankfully, you know, who've already worked on these, these films. Um, a, a term... So, uh, so we've talked about the the idea of the auteur and why it's problematic. Um, we can come back to Impegno in a moment uh, and the question of a political art film. The, a term like post-realism, which might be more annoying to to some readers, is it comes from Millicent Marcus, uh, the great American Italian film scholar, who engaged in a debate um, in in the pages of a journal with uh, some other scholars after the release of Il Divo, uh, as as some people might know. And uh, coined this term post-realism to try to capture what Sorrentino was doing with the style, the very substance of the film style in uh, Il Divo. And, and I've talked about that already. Uh, this, again, is the film in which he's, he's quoting from a variety of mostly American Hollywood filmmakers, genre film, crime film, uh, and this kind of thing. And also using um, an extraordinary uh, variety of music in extremely creative ways, usually in ironic uh, uh, you know, contrapuntal sort of ironic contrast to, to, to the action. Um, so, so all of that taken together, uh, which combines aspects of uh, American Hollywood genre film, music video, advertising, televisions, televisual style, fast cutting, uh, uh, all kinds of things, very spectacular style. Um, she describes uh, in the terms of post-realism. So not wanting to say that it's, there isn't some aspect of realism there, but it's it's definitely not any kind of traditional neorealism, and nor more importantly, is it any kind of neorealism, which is sort of something that always has to be dealt with when you're talking about Italian film. It seems it's this neorealism is this uh, you, you know, this giant thing that's looming there in the past, this extremely important movement, of course, uh, for for world cinema um, that a lot of scholars today would really like to just sort of leave behind and, and try to judge 21st century films more on their own terms. I think which is a legitimate point. Um, so a term like post-realism is kind of nice because it bridges between earlier realisms and what comes after with a film like Il Divo, for example. And so I, I take that term and sort of apply it uh, to, to all of his films in, in a certain way, uh, trying to refine what the term means and what realism means for a filmmaker like Sorrentino, which has very little to do with, um, you know, representing some kind of recognizable reality for the average viewer and much more, to do with um, offering a kind of critique, a political or maybe more an ethical critique of certain aspects of contemporary society, whether it's Italian society or some other society, um, and and so and so the you know this is both how realism signifies and also how uh, the the politics or some kind of political 
critical dimension comes into the films and why you might want to refer to these as, as uh, certain kinds of political art films, which is a weird sort of hybrid. Yes. And, uh, which brings us to impeño. I mean, to impeño. So <laughs> how do you, how do you reconcile the, the cinema of impeño and a political art film with this autorism, post-realism um, of Sorrentino cinema? Yeah, it's it's all of a piece, of course. It does take quite a few pages to sort of put it all together. Um, if we go back to uh, what we were discussing initially, which is the title of the book or the subtitle, um, mm-hmm. the cinema cinema Paolo Sorrentino, of course, is dictated by the series. But the subtitle is is the part that I got to come up with, and it took it took me quite a while, some weeks, to settle on uh, this phrase: the commitment to style. Uh, the style we've discussed, I think, uh, fairly well, but commitment um, is it translates in English the the Italian word impegno, more or less. Um, uh, commitment certainly works, um, but it doesn't even capture, I think, the full, uh, you know, sort of uh, uh, sense of of, of impegno for an, for an Italian or, or a, a historian of Italian cinema, um, where impegno impegno in this context implies a civic uh, or political commitment or engagement. Um, uh, precisely as a filmmaker, you know, through filmmaking practice, uh, combining theory and practice, walking the talk, I guess, as a filmmaker. Um, and this, this is embodied in a, in a movement like neorealism, uh, or supposedly it is, um, uh, films, uh, grappling with, uh, s- social issues, uh, you know, current, current events, uh, th- problems of the day ripped from the headlines. Um, this is clearly not really what's going on in Sorrentino's films, um, but uh, but the this idea of impegno uh, really implanted itself in the in the uh, I guess Italian cinematic psyche and is is really lodged there and has to be confronted. It's a really really useful and important idea, um, and so I, I go from a notion like post realism, which we were just talking about, a certain way of talking about Sorrentino's approach to style. Um, and add to that uh, a term like uh, intensified continuity style from the American uh, film film uh, critic David Boardwell, um, which he coined in around the 2000 period to describe um, changes, certain changes in in uh, American filmmaking and international film style from the 1990s on. Um, a movement that's uh, a, a series of changes which are probably by now historical in 2020. But I think Sorrentino comes along early enough. Uh, as a filmmaker in, in with you know around 2003 with his first feature uh, or 2000 um, to be part of this and so this idea of an intensified continuity style describes uh, not a rejection of classical filmmaking uh, a classical approach to narration that is that means telling a story fairly clearly to to the viewer um, but 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 it, but uh, doing that in a more intensified ramped up sort of way again drawing from uh, other genres and media forms, music video, television, and so on. Um, precisely what he does in Il Divo, which is maybe the best example in his canon of, of this kind of thing. Um, but I think he does this uh, more or less all through his uh, his film, his corpus so far. Uh, this this uh, uh, idea of an intensified style. And, and it's uh, uh, Alan O'Leary, uh, the, the scholar of Italian cinema, who talks about, uh, in a different context, talks about impegno as a discourse. Uh, he's talking about different kinds of different filmic examples, but he, he coins this idea of impegno as a discourse manifesting in the level of the discourse of the film, which I kind of translate 
uh, for the reader as as impenuous style, which I think maybe expresses more clearly what he's getting at there. Um, so that that imp- impulse to some kind of political ethical commitment or engagement manifests right there in the style, and so it, it's it's there and it has to be taken account of. That's the commitment to style. Yes, it's so interesting. And uh, can, so can you give an example? Art. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yes, politics and art. You, you're talking about the political art film. Yeah. Can you give an example, a specific example um, for our listeners where you actually um, show can show the, the connection between politics and style? Uh, well, of course, uh, Il Divo has been very well analyzed in these terms uh, uh, by others before me, like Nils and Marcus. Um, I have an ex- I, I, I actually find that with a film like Loro in the final chapter and the most recent film, uh, although there's another TV ser- series already out, um, the most recent uh, sort of completed film that was released internationally in, in a single shorter version and released initially in Italy in a two part sort of super long version. Um, and these are very different. These are different films um, with, you know, with the same title, uh, Loro, meaning them or they in English, I guess. Or, or other things, <laughs> um, but basically, it's a it's another biopic of uh, a more recent political figure, Silvio Berlusconi. Of course, um, you know this well. And and unlike Andreotti, Berlusconi yes. is is a, an Italian politician, or, or I guess kind of celebrity known outside of Italy quite quite a lot. Uh, you know, over here, I think people knew of him before this film came out. And ironically, the film hasn't really been distributed, so. Uh, it hasn't had much of an impact uh, over here in North America. Um, yes. Uh, unlike Il Divo, for example, which was tremendously successful and very widely distributed. At any rate, uh, as another political biopic, Loro displays a very different approach to style that's quieter and slower, especially in the longer version, I guess. Um, still incorporates uh, a wide variety of musics, and uh, there's still some some spectacular uh, camera work and and some you know, great lighting and, and mise-en-scene and use of bodies and so on. But, but it's definitely, it has a very different feeling. Um, so I think that it's really, um, Sorrentino is doing different things here, combining his, his uh, interest in, in, you know, sort of critiquing this guy uh, who is really sort of um, has been vilified in the press, uh, of course, if you know Berlusconi's story. Um, and, and has even been sent to jail. Uh, has been has been uh, uh, he's he's been uh, uh, he was found guilty of of all kinds of charges, of corruption, and so on. Um, and so, to make a biopic of this guy is a very strange choice. And you'd sort of think, well, this is going to be a very critical film to make some sort of point about how how nasty this 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 powerful man is. But but strangely. Sorrentino goes goes sort of easy on him, uh, especially in the in the early stages of the film. I think. Um, well, in the early stages, he's not even there. Um, but what Sorrentino does yes. in the first half of the international release is sort of set the, this stylistically sets the stage for the viewer to uh, I, not identify with Berlusconi so much as be optically aligned with Berlusconi in his uh, point of view on things. And, and the things in question uh, tend to be uh, overwhelmingly the bodies of young women uh, who are who are you know many of whom feature feature in the film in the course of the story, um, and this of course is also a prominent feature of Berlusconi's actual uh, career as a more as a uh, you know as a bad dude than as a politician, <laughs> and uh, and so so it might 
it might look at first blush as though Sorrentino is just kind of um, uh, perpetuating the problem. Um, but I think he's actually trying and, and succeeds to a certain extent in, in embedding his uh, critical perspective precisely by sort of kind of compelling the viewer very uncomfortably to see things from Berlusconi's point of view. And, and there are some you know, points where this is fairly clear. Uh, and therefore, the, the viewer hopefully will, will see that there's a problem with this way of looking at things, especially with this way of, uh, of, of looking at or representing or exploiting the bodies of women, uh, you know, to, to bring it down to that. Yeah, there are many sequences in the, in the even in the international film, mm. internationally released film, there are very many scenes in which we are actually, as, a, as the audience, we are actually encouraged to take uh, Berlusconi's point of view, Berlusconi's gaze, actually, on uh, the women's bodies, which in the time of the Me Too is a little bit problematic. So we yeah. are going back to the idea of ethics in film um, and to the, the, the notion of responsibility of the author or right. the author that you actually discuss at length in the film. Uh, what's your position on that, on this, um, you know, on Sorrentino's depiction of uh, women especially mm. in loro but not only there because that's that's no no by no means very, yeah um, it, again it's a complex combination of things you know because um on the one hand we're talking about uh we're, we're still sort of talking about the political dimension of his uh, film work if it's there um we're ta- so we're talking about impegno what post-realism means and so forth um, this, his, his films and TV series are full of, uh, you know, attractive, young, scantily clad women. Um, but they're also, they're also a lot of, uh, of course, there are a lot of men. In fact, his protagonists are overwhelmingly, um, men. His, his most recent film, which is still in production will be the first one to have a female lead, I believe. So, so we have all the subjects here are these men of a certain age, uh, that, by whom men of power typically, uh, and and Sorrentino is clearly fascinated by this kind of character, and I don't think he he's he uh, keeps um, re- sort of reproducing this sort of character, often using Tony Servillo, just because uh, just for just just for its own sake, uh, or because he thinks it's funny or cool, but rather he really wants to investigate this kind of man um, who might look at women in a certain way or need women to give him something like salvation, you know, or something like that. Um, he's interested in critiquing that kind of man. So, so this is his approach to gender. The politics of gender is not totally one-sided and not entirely uh, negative or by any means. Um, he's, he's very critical of, of a certain version of masculinity. In fact, I would say, although also fascinated by it. Uh, and so there's this, there's, there's all this, these tensions and contradictions running through all these films, not the least of which is if you do, um, photograph the bodies of women really well, like Luca Bagazzi does, you know, well lit and well framed and so on. If you do that, um, it's going to look a certain way and have a certain impact on the viewer, no matter how much you're trying to encourage the viewer to be critical. So it really yes. forces the viewer to do some work that they may not even be aware of, you know. So this is a, this is a problematic thing. Yeah. Yeah, in this regard, actually, in the book, you are talking about uh, the difference between the gaze and the state um, on the bodies of women, on the women's body in general. Uh, can you can you explain that? Mm. Elaborate on that. Sorry, could you just repeat that? Uh, you are talking about the 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 man's gaze on the woman, 
the woman's body, but also you're talking right. about the difference between the gaze, which is part of, uh, uh, you know, film theory in general uh, is ah. being discussed for a long time. But you are, you are, you bring in the idea, the notion of the stare, the stare on, right. which is different from the gaze. Can you elaborate on that? Yeah. Uh, the, again, uh, a complex bundle of things. Uh, I have to give credit to uh, not just Rosemary Garland Thompson's book, uh, which is called The Stare, I think, which is a work in disability studies in a kind of in the kind of sociological uh, vein um, of disability studies, not film studies, in other words. And also my uh, recent grad student um, who fin- finished her dissertation uh, and worked in disability studies. So therefore, I had to read up on this stuff. And we, we discovered this notion of the stare um, used in a sort of sociological way to talk about how um, real people look at real disabled people. Um, and, and what, and, and how that sort of, there's a net, there's a kind of, uh, visual ideological structure there. That's really kind of, uh, is- isomorphic with, or, or analogous to what Laura Mulvey, how Laura Mulvey, uh, theorizes the male gaze as a kind of visual ideological structure of looking, you know, uh, and, uh, in imposing, um, uh, one's power upon, uh, an objectified, uh, other person. But where the gaze, of course, sort of boils down to, uh, without the psychoanalytic psychoanalytic part, boils down to the an, a radical sort of objectification of the other person, which is a bad thing. Um, the stare sort of boils down to a radical othering of the other person, which is a, which is of course a different idea. In other words, uh, it, it it heads it heads more in the direction of almost dehumanizing the other person, not just objectifying, but dehumanizing. Yes. Um, and that other person, yeah. of course in the case of the stare is a disabled person, a person who's visibly disabled uh, to, for this to work. And, and so this emphasis on the visual and staring uh, led us to, to sort of think, well, this is perfect for film. You know, so you just shift the, you shift your example from a real world example to, to a cinematic example and see what happens. And so that's what we did. And, and it works really well. Um, and I don't know if anybody's done this apart from us. Uh, so I credit her in my book, my student, um, for sort of, the, <laughs> the, we, you know, we coined this idea of the stare used in a, in a, a filmic film studies context. Um, so in Sorrentino, uh, if you look at his films, uh, again, at first blush, you might think, what does this have to do with Sorrentino? Well, in fact, um, here and there, uh, but in, in perhaps more in, in sort of increasingly uh, lately, he he has cast uh, actual d- physically and or uh, mentally disabled actors in certain roles, usually smaller roles, supporting yes. roles. Most most uh, uh, notably, of course, uh, Giacomo in uh, uh, the young ward of of uh, Cardinal Voello in the Young Pope, um, who comes to play an even more important role in the second series, the New Pope, uh, Giacomo. Um, and so and so you have this. Is clearly uh, quite severely disabled young man um, on screen a lot of the time, and so you you sort of think, well, that's good, you know, he cast he cast that guy and not some actor who's sort of pretending to be disabled and this kind of thing. So there's a whole there's a whole sort of discussion there that, that sort of goes into go, merges into disability uh, theory, disability studies. Um, my point, I guess, was to was to sort of go back and forth between what's going on with Sorrentino's representation of women and the and the kind of discussion that the, the male gaze um, addresses, you know, and uh, what's going on in, Sor- in in Sorrentino's films with this idea of the stare and his approach to representing other kinds of uh, what what I w- what I call non normative bodies, non normative identities, um, uh, and and the results are the answers are often quite 
quite different, even though sometimes they merge when they, the sort of disabled or non-normative body is also that of a woman. So that also happens. Yes, and you mentioned a lot of uh, uh, male protagonists and male uh, uh, characters and even actors like Servillo who are overwhelmingly present in uh, in Sorrentino's film. Mm. And you there is a, there is a pivotal notion in your book which is the Sorrentinian subject um, to to talk about mm. this kind of construct in uh, in the book in the films. Yeah. Can you can you explain what the Sorrentinian subject is? What do you mean by that? Yeah, I just think it's worth uh, retaining a term like the subject, which is, again, often confusing to students or um, uh, people outside of psychoanalysis or philosophy or linguistics even, uh, when you talk about subjects, uh, because it's a, in English, it's a very slippery term that means lots of things. But it also, in this case, of course, refers to, uh, really what I'm talking about is recurrent character type. Um, but not any single character, so a kind of uh, a kind of foundational um, type uh, f- for the, the 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 protagonist that tends to prevail in 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 really all of Sorrentino's films and his and, and his TV series um, uh, until the most once once the new film Mob Girl comes out that'll change it seems but anyway up until now um, the the protagonist has always been a man usually an older guy middle aged or even older with the exception of Jude Law and the young Pope, although he often acts as though he's very old and reactionary. Um, <laughs> yes. A man who is, who is white and European or North American, uh, like Sean Penn or Jude Law, you know, uh, playing Americans or playing Europeans or Europeans playing, uh, playing European characters. Um, he's, he, you know, he even has a, a, a one character in youth um, dress up as Hitler because he's preparing for a, a role playing Hitler in a film, a film within the film. Uh, and, and so, and, and with, with, uh, of course, with Andreotti and Berlusconi, we have real historical figures who are portrayed by, in both cases, uh, Servillo, uh, very, in a very, very different uh, approach in each case, um, where you, you are, uh, perhaps, uh, more or less in alignment with that, with that, uh, man at, at, at the center of things. Uh, interestingly, Andreotti remains much more of a cipher, a sort of an enigma with whom it's virtually impossible to identify, I think. Whereas Berlusconi, as we've already touched on, um, it, you know, you're, you're, you are more encouraged to sympathize with him. And that is, that is a really weird sort of effect, I think, that Sorrentino does deliberately. And I'm, I'm still not sure why. Um, at any rate, this is a consistent feature of his approach to filmmaking. And, and, and overall, um, again, I think it's because uh, this really becomes clear in Lauro. He's very fascinated by how these, this kind of man in the 21st century is old enough and smart enough, just smart enough to realize that he's sort of a dinosaur He's on the way out, even though he still has power. Um, he's, his, his species is sort of doomed to extinction. And he's, he's maybe the last of his species. And he's enjoying the spectacle of his own, you know, sort of gradual uh, demise. Interesting. Yeah. <laughs> in, in some cases, yeah, in so. some of the films, yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah, that's true. Um, yes, there is another another passage. Well, this is not only a passage. It's something that you... you discuss at length in the book, uh, because you're talking about um, Sorrentino as the transnational or the transnational filmmaker. Mm. Actually, in your words, I think you say it's an exemplary 21st century transnational filmmaker. So you don't find Sorrentino uh, to be affiliated to what we mean, you know, what, what we mean for Italian national cinema. 
you situate him a little bit more on the transnational um, stage, which is a slippery term. Um, as you say, actually, you're navigating some stormy waters because in the um, Anglo-Saxon world, uh, world, this term kind of identifies films and a type of cinema which is foreign. It's not... Yeah. It, but for you, it's not only foreign. It's not... A, it's, this is not the problem. So can you explain that? Can you well, talk about that? The thing is, um, it's it's really difficult or impossible to describe really much American filmmaking, for example, as transnational, precisely because of Hollywood, right? It, uh, I mean, Hollywood is always there as this giant um, uh, sort of monolithic standard against which everything is measured. Uh, and, and so, uh, and then there are all kinds of other things happening outside of that, of course, thank God, you know. And uh, what, so, so where, of course, we still have um, independent cinema or experimental cinema or, or in this case, like national cinemas, uh, you know, sort of defining themselves um, over against Hollywood or maybe just ignoring Hollywood or, or um, slavishly imitating Hollywood, as the case may be. Um, someone like Alex Marlowe Mann has shown very, very well how Sorrentino begins as a Neapolitan uh, filmmaker, uh, you know, in that context, comes out, of, emerges in that context and then very quickly um, uh, again, sort of transcends that context. And that's sort of where I pick things up, you know, because I'm not a, uh, an expert on, say, Neapolitan or even Italian national cinema enough to, to, uh, to uh, talk about someone like that. Um, and Sorrentino is a gift then to someone like me because I, I really think he, he just doesn't represent the typical sort of Italian filmmaker representing a kind of national cinematic ethos, um, you know, or the legacy of neorealism or whatever it is, you know. Um, uh, and this is very clear, I think, in in the transnational nature of his more recent productions as they get bigger and have larger budgets um, with international casts and and um, all you know all sorts of locations uh, outside of Italy uh, and so on. Uh, but but where where uh, many scholars, of course, would use transnational uh, to in a kind of almost post-colonial uh, way to refer to certain kinds of stories, not just the production context, but certain kinds of stories, stories of, of uh, diaspora, uh, you know, refugees, uh, people displaced and migrants and so on, um, which is very true and important. I'm using, obviously using transnational in a different sense because Sorrentino doesn't make that kind of film, that kind of political film. His films are, his stories rather are transnational in, you know, it really comes back to the this fascination with a certain kind of man, a Sorrentinian subject, who's a very cosmopolitan figure, typically, a man of the world, um, a man of a certain age, uh, very representative of a certain ethos and age uh, and, and a certain brand of masculinity that, again, is passing out of existence, for better or worse. Um, and, and so so that's that's sort of one of the primary ways that I'm construing transnational on the level of, of story. Yes, and you mentioned the locations as well. Mm. Um, I think you are discussing locations and space and place and landscape, Mm. um, especially in the consequences of love in the chapter devoted to that. Um, Because it has, I mean, even even this idea of space and landscape is very important in Sorrentino's cinema. And you um, you analyze that that, um, very thoroughly. Um, can you discuss about that? Yeah, I mean, this is obviously a, a feature of all of his films, um, especially the films more than the TV series, maybe, even though the series is set nominally in the Vatican. Um, there is a sort of a maybe a narrower scope 
uh, precisely because it's uh, framed for television. At any rate, um, films like The Great, The Grande Bellezza, The Great Beauty, The Consequences of Love, uh, and others, um, you know, when you see them on the big screen, they they read really well because of the use of space. I mean, Bagazzi's camera work and this this approach to uh, sort of a spectacular style is not only about camera work or lighting or or whatever. It's also about the, the the space in which you're filming, the location that you choose, or the set that you build. And in the early films, it's as often as not a real location. Um, you know that the the use of uh, constructed sets and digital effects comes much later for Sorrentino. Um, so, Consequences of Love, as his uh, I guess second feature film from the early two thousands, is filmed in in and around uh, Lugano before the action shifts in the last part to down to I think Naples in the south. Um, so he deliberately shoots it up there in the north uh, in Switzerland, Italian speaking Switzerland, in order to take advantage of the the atmosphere, uh, the weather, the this sort of um, uh, sterile hotels uh, in which the main character is living. Um, shopping malls, banks, the sort of Swiss atmosphere of sterility and banality, um, at least in the way it's, it, it's uh, represented in the film. Um, Marc Auger coined the term, the anthropologist coined the term non-place, the, the, the dehumanized and banal spaces of late capitalism. Um, these spaces and places in which you don't really do anything except wait um, or, or I guess spaces of consumption. The primary activity would be either waiting around for something to happen like in an airport lounge um, or you're at an ATM machine getting money or you're in a store buying something, you know, this kind of thing. Um, and and, and Sorrentino uh, and Bagazzi use these spaces in a very critical way to set up their portrayal of the character where uh, space and, and place uh, location really uh, resonates very strongly in the level of character in that film. Um, so, that, so that the shift in the last act to in genre to a kind of poliziesco uh, mafia film um, and a shift in location is even, is all the more uh, effective, I think. Right. Um, yes. Isn't that strange that uh, Switzerland is also the location <laughs> of uh, uh, youth? Actually. Right. But it looks completely different, mm-hmm. of course, in the two films. You yeah. never know it was the same country. Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, uh, in the, the way in which he, uh, depicts spaces is always significant. Well, and there's well, some Switzerland not, also in the Vatican, right? Yeah, they're not trying to do the same thing at all in youth uh, with with uh, this country. Yeah. Of, they're up in the Alps and near Davos or whatever. Um, it's all about verticality. There's comparisons with Thomas Mann's Magic Mountain and so on. Um, uh, you know, so, so thematically and uh, diegetically or nar- narrative-wise, it's very, very different. Um, even though at the center of the film, you have at least these two guys, again, these older guys, the the the, con- the composer, Michael Caine's character, Harvey Keitel's uh, film director, not really a reflection of Sorrentino, um, who are uh, who are staying at the spa in the Swiss Alps. And and um, there and and for the first for much of the film, really very little happens of any consequence apart from people wandering around and meeting and talking and, and doing nothing. Um, but but the effect is quite different from consequences of love, of course. Yes, um, yeah. and you also mentioned genre, film genre here mm-hmm. and there, because you were talking about um, the road film for uh, this must be the place, and then uh, in the book you discuss a lot the melodrama, uh, kind of male melodrama, especially mm-hmm. in most of the films. Um, 
I was also thinking of the great beauty that we didn't discuss that much actually, but it's uh it's probably his most yeah. important film because he won the Oscar in the, in uh, 2014. Yeah. So um, yeah, I mean because film genre is is a very familiar uh way to to present a film to the audience, but he mm. also plays with that and uh, and you um you you're working on that on this concept in uh, in the book. Yeah, I mean, uh, films like Consequences of Love, Youth, and the Great Beauty, uh, I think really sort of remain all the way through fairly resolutely uh, examples of a certain kind of art film, however else you want to qualify that, um, Fellini-esque or, or political or whatever, um, or, 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 and flirting with certain genres maybe along the way. Whereas by the time we get to the Young Pope TV series uh, with Jude Law as the first American Pope, um, there, there's an interesting shift, uh, stylistically and tonally and generically. I mean, it's a TV series to begin with, uh, so it has to sort of play out differently. They have to approach things differently. Um, but at a certain point in the series, you begin to realize that, uh, um, th- there's, there's irony is sort of less prevalent the, the typical Sorrentinian irony, which I think really characterizes his, uh, his early, his first films or most of his films, um, becomes somewhat less important, and and you you're meant to actually take seriously the the fact that this pope, uh, this fictitious pope, is going around performing actual miracles. You're meant to really you know they're they're meant to be taken seriously as bona fide miracles, and therefore uh, he appears to be some kind of uh, walking talking saint in the 21st century, which is really extraordinary, a, a really crazy thing to do when you think about it at this point in time, um, and so. Uh, Apart from apart from anything else you might want to say about that, uh, he, he achieves this, I think, and pulls it off by reverting to certain uh, melodramatic techniques uh, cinematically in terms of how some of these scenes are, are filmed. And, 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 and of course, the use of music. Um, after all, the root of melodrama is melos, the Greek word for music. Um, now, melodramas, melodramatic films don't always use mu- music, but they overwhelmingly do, you know, in fact, use music to uh, aid in the manipulation of the viewer on a kind of emotional gut level, which is part of the point and part of the, the you know, attraction of melodrama really as a genre. Um, so uh, even though he's still telling the story of a particular kind of man uh, who's a man of power and, 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 and all, those, all the, the usual things are there, um, he, the story is very different and the outcomes are very different, uh, I think. And uh, his use of music it becomes quite different because the music actually starts to match the action rather than contrast with it ironically, which uh, tended to be what happened in Il Divo, for example. So, so all of a sudden you've got the Pope performing a miracle and there's sort of some, you know, some swelling um, orchestral music, <laughs> which is much more conventional, uh, yes. which is interesting because this is, this is totally deliberate. So, you know. Yeah. Yeah, and also being Jude Law, uh, actually yeah. uh, performing the Pope is uh, it's uh, ironic per se. Um, anyway, well, you, there, there's not I to mean, say this... there isn't a lot of irony there, absolutely, but it, it tends yes, to take different yes. forms. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. absolutely, absolutely. Um, I have one, probably one last question for you hmm. because. You are actually discussing, especially uh, at the end of the book, you're discussing Sorrentino's film as uh, postmodern. We we already talked about 
post-realism, but you also say that he's post-modern, he's (laughs) post-secular, he's post-ironic. So um, I just wanted you to like give our listeners an idea of uh, why this category of postness is useful to understand Sorrentino's film. Yeah, and there's even there's even another one, post-human, which uh, doesn't apply so much to sort Post-human. Well, even though that mm-hmm. does actually um, become relevant if you're talking about, uh, uh, say, disabled uh, actors and the question of the stare and the idea yes. of dehumanizing another person, right? Um, the, what is the definition of the human? And that also arises complete, in a completely different way. And, if, and this must be the place as soon as the Holocaust is evoked. And the uh, it becomes uh, about um, the perpetrator victim relationship, right? Of course, he 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 ends up the Champagne uh, character is hunting down his father's uh, tormentor in this camp, the camp guard who tormented his father, um, and he finds him, uh, and he ends up humiliating him uh, where the guard had humiliated his father, and so on, and so and so. Um, the, uh, Levy's question in the title: uh, If this is a man, you know, what is a man? What who who's a man? What does that mean to be a man? Uh, which can mean either, of course, a human being or un uomo, a man, right, a male gender. Uh, so, so, so all those questions are certainly in play there. And the post um, prefix in all these terms, again, this is kind of annoying jargon, I'm sure, for a lot of readers. Um, I, I, I probably should work harder to excise that stuff. But I mean, sometimes these words are really the best term, like post-realism. I don't know how else to express what, what Millicent Marcus means. Um, uh, post-secular, for example, in application to the Young Pope series, when when uh, Sorrentino chooses to uh, have these miracles occurring on screen and, and, and they're ha- really meant to be taken seriously as miracles, then talking about this as a manifestation of a post-secular impulse really makes sense. In other words, um, we don't just live in some kind of, uh, you know, select secular modernity where nobody believes in anything. That's obviously not the case if, if he can make a film, uh, a TV show like this, right? Um, th- there's something else going on there. Uh, the question of faith or belief is still, is, is or perhaps again being taken seriously by someone like Sorrentino, it, it seems. Um, uh, po- po- post-ironic, uh, you know, with respect to to some of his films, especially, say, Il Divo, um, tr- you know, it tr- tries to describe how some of these films are so ironic that they sort of go beyond any conventional understanding of irony to something much more serious, really, a very serious irony that's very, that's really, you know, being, you know, it's about cr- critiquing uh, uh, things that really need to be interrogated. Like, you know, who was Andriotti? What's his degree of guilt? Um, what, what, what did he, what did he get up to? What was his relationship with the mafia? You know, this kind of thing. So Sorrentino treats this in in a tremendously irreducibly ironic way, even though it's incredibly serious, right. Uh, for, for Italian political, uh, modern Italian history. Um, and, and it's totally effective. Like it's a great choice. And so when he, when he moves to something a little more sober and serious in, in Loro, it's sort of like, oh man, what happened? Where's all that irony, you know? (laughs) Um, yeah, maybe. So, yeah, maybe in the in the um, kind of costumes that uh, Berlusconi wears. Mm, mm, that's mm. the irony. Yeah, exactly. Maybe. On a different level of, right. of, of casting, mm-hmm. acting, uh, dialogue. Sure, yes. of course, of course. 
Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, I think, no, I think this postness is actually very useful in the way in which you explain it. Mm. It's very useful to understand it better because Sorrentino is so unique and uh, <laughs> the, the usual, the usual terms, the usual terminology, the usual categories are not, are not enough to understand it. So well, in brief, it, it, is, it, it, here it tends to mean both coming, what comes after, but also an amplification um, and really rarely does it mean that something has been left behind altogether. The other term there, realism or secular or irony, is always still yes. present, but it's in a it's in, in in a different form. So there's a need to address that. So yeah, yeah, got it. Yes, absolutely. Very interesting. Mm-hmm. Well, Russ, um, I think we've taken up a lot of your time, <laughs> and uh, so why don't you talk? Why don't you just say announce? Um, what are you working on now? Oh, well, again, I mean, I, the, I haven't really introduced this, but uh, it, it's not entirely unrelated. I'm working on, on something on what I term post-human memory. So, uh, so if we've already kind of broached what post-human means, um, I'm trying to apply that way of thinking to something like uh, memory, which is an enormous topic, of course, in memory studies. Yes. Um, Posthumanist theory is also a critical posthumanism is an enormous uh, field, and I'm trying to sort of bring them together, which um, is somewhat uh, unusual. Um, and and this is in application to to films, mostly filmic examples. So I'm not leaving film behind, but uh, but uh, it's not really Sorrentino anymore, <laughs> not right now. Well, well, first of all, there is a connection, you know, with the posthuman yeah. uh, elaboration yeah. of the subject that you were talking about. I think there is a connection. And anyway, it sounds like a great project. So uh, I good would luck love with to that. do something on the new Pope series because it's so crazy. Yes, I just wanted to ask you, I mean, um, mm. it's not in your book. I mean, it just no. came out. So, no. um, yeah, yeah. So maybe we'll read an article about that. Soon. Yeah, to me, it's like he suddenly rewatched all of David Lynch or something. Really strange. Really strange. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I I absolutely agree. I mean, even a young pope is strange, but also the ah. also the the acting, the acting mm-hmm. also is very strange mm-hmm. in the new pope. Yes, um, exactly. Very unusual. Yeah. Mm-hmm. David Lynch. <laughs> but yes, possibly. Yeah, that's a great connection. Um, Russ. I really want to thank you for being on the show today. And uh, I really enjoyed the conversation. I enjoyed the book. I enjoyed everything. So thank you very much and take care. Thank you again, Nico. Uh, Ciao. 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 Bye. So thanks a lot for listening to this installment of the Italian Studies channel on the New Books Network. Please come back to check out our other podcasts on topics like art history, Italian cinema, medieval literature, television studies. And even more than that, history of thought, contemporary women's writing, gender studies, ecology, As well as politics and religion in Italy, opera, queer theory, Jewish studies, Dante, Machiavelli, you get the idea. We are your Italian studies hosts. Giancarlo Lombardi. Nicoletta Marini-Maio. And Ellen Nirenberg. All comments and questions can be addressed to itst at gmail.com. E grazie dell'ascolto. Thanks a lot for listening and we'll see you next time.